and welcome to the latest edition of the Asset Allocator podcast. We are back after the summer. Well, sort of. Uh, Dave Baxter is on holiday in Albania at the moment, and uh, David Thorpe has uh, found something better to do. Uh, so I am Damien Fantato, Deputy Editor of Asset Allocator, and with me uh, today is uh, uh, Alex Funk, the Chief Investment Officer at Schroeder Investment Solutions. Hello, Alex. Hey, good to be here. So one of the traditional uh, events of the summer is the Jackson Hole Summit. I was wondering if you uh, could give me your thoughts on on where we are with the Fed and the US rate hiking cycle. I think August is interesting. It's almost a bit like the movie I Know What You Did Last Summer, right? Where we keep seeing this repricing in the yield curve uh, happening in and around this time around Jackson Hole. And I think that the, the strap line that Powell sort of comes out with that says navigating the stars under cloudy skies is a really good description, I think, of where one, the central banks are, two, where markets are, and three, the repricing we saw yet again within August. So so for those that didn't follow so closely and were sitting maybe on beaches, we saw a massive move up within the US yield curve, pricing in maybe not much more hikes, but rather higher for longer. And so I think the statement that we took away there that was absolutely clear, and I think that the market was looking for, was also that the target is 2%, right? And that is clear. I think there's been a lot of debate in the market about you know, will the Fed continue to press to get inflation from 3 down to 2%? And what's the economic consequences of that? I think he made it fairly clear to all market participants, it is 2%, and that's what we're targeting there. I think on the, on the positive side, there was acknowledgement that we've seen movements in the right direction. So clearly, we've had two months of really uh, uh, positive prints from an inflation aspect. But I don't think the Fed is convinced that that battle is completely won. The other, the other note that we had as well is to say that, you know, this disruption we had within the COVID period, you know, where it took you about three weeks to, to get any goods delivered to your house, that has now worked through the system. And so most of the inflationary pressure is sitting on the services side. Uh, and that takes a little while to move through the system. Now, what's really interesting as well at this point is that you're having real wage growth. Right? So if inflation is down to 3% and wage growth is beyond that, that's positive real wage growth. And we know us as humans, we are so predictable. When we earn more money, we tend to spend it. And so that sort of bracket that has high propensity to spend, I think that's the risk that they're keeping an eye on. So if we continue to see spending there, we see investment in goods, we see investment in services by consumers, i.e. this really strong uh, you know, US consumer, that's an inflationary risk. And so you're almost at the point again where Good news from a market perspective is bad news to a rates perspective. And so the stronger U.S. GDP growth that we saw, the continued consumer spending, I think that ultimately creates a real headwind um, for them. And, and, you know, Powell sort of acknowledged that as well and said, you know, growth rates will inhibit our path to inflation uh, or at least winning the battle against inflation. So I think some really positive notes out of there. Um, some really firm notes as well. And I think, you know, there was a little bit there for the hawks uh, and, and for the doves ultimately out of that. And have you done anything um, specifically with your portfolios in response to, to these events? I think we've been short duration for, for most of that. So we, we've been slightly about a year short government bond duration, uh, which we felt was appropriate given that, you know, inflation is sticky. We have this idea about a tight labor market. Um, we do worry about secondary effects. So so we were positioned correctly, I'd say, before that. And, you know, the argument now is, is you know, is that all the pricing? Has it done all of the move? And I think we're sort of positioned uh, to stay put at this point and just sit on our hands a little bit. And more generally, where does this leave the path for uh, inflation and uh, whether we do ever get back to uh, to 2%? 
So, so our economic forecast is sure to come out, and and we don't, you know, we don't forecast inflation back to two percent well beyond twenty twenty four again, right? So, so the path is on its way, and we know that the Fed has acknowledged that they're going there, but it's not a linear path, right? And I think inflation, you know, once you get from three percent down, becomes a lot harder. I also think there's structural changes happening, right? And so the last decade, you know, it was all about low rates, QE, sluggish growth, etc. Um, now we're moving into sort of three changing dynamics of a complete regime shift change, if you like. Clearly, you know, we've lost part of the labor market post-pandemic, right? People retire early, didn't return to the job market, long-term sick. We have an aging population. Uh, and that is creating a shortage of labor, and if you look at the inflation problem today, is ultimately labor shortage, right? That's creating inflationary pressure and nervousness for developed market central banks. That's the first point. The second one is clearly the, the move from globalization is going to deglobalization, nearshoring, call it what you like, friendshoring if you like. Um, but the risks that we saw in COVID, companies do not want to be caught out again. And so we're moving production nearer in some cases, and that ultimately is not as efficient and that will drive up prices. And then the last bit is around net zero. I mean, we're, we're getting nearer 2030, right? And that's sort of the halfway mark to our 2050 journey. Uh, and so the investment in net zero, the technology, the commodities that we require, it's just not enough yet, right? And so that is quite inflationary as well, or greenflation, if you like. So I think the dynamics around uh, those three aspects will mean that central banks will have to prioritize inflation over growth probably for the next decade. And so you'll be hearing more conversations about bringing inflation down rather than creating inflation, I would say, which is what you know a lot of developed markets, Japan included, would have said during that time period. I think interestingly, um, you know, there's lots of conversations about AI, and I'm sure you know you've heard lots about it, read lots about it. Probably not a day goes past where you haven't heard the word ChatGPT at this point. Uh, and so that could actually be quite deflationary. And so if we can increase productivity and offset some of the labor shortages we have through technology investment in AI, that could combat some of this price pressure. But what's also interesting is that you know. We saw with the U.S. Uh, government debt standoff that you know highly indebted economies will come back into into focus, right? When rates are much higher, um, you know you can't sort of hide your indebtedness as much anymore. And so, managing your fiscal balance sheet, I think, will be be really important not only for the U.K. as we've seen more than once at this point, but for more developed markets. And so that pressure uh, will put a lid on some spending as well, which ultimately sucks liquidity out of the market. And we know how that sort of affects risk assets as well and inflation. So I think lots going on and a long-winded answer to say the path to inflation is there, but there are some headwinds along the journey. Yeah. And obviously one of the asset classes which is uh, most susceptible to interest rates and inflation is fixed income. We, we discussed fixed income a little bit earlier, but uh, what are your thoughts on this asset class more generally? Well, if you think about last year, I think many cautious investors got a big fright, right? Because fixed income was your safe haven. Uh, it was a place where you could get some correlation benefits, you get some hedging capability. Now, what's interesting is we've seen pockets of this within history where, you know, inflation moves up just as sharply as interest rates do in, uh, you know, fixed income tends to lose its hedging capability. And so that's the backdrop of last year. Many investors withdrew from the asset class. Clearly, interest rates moved up by a magnitude we haven't seen for a long, long time. Um, and so the starting point last year was pretty bad, right? I mean, sub sort of 2% rates across the board where they're moving sharply upward roll forward into 2023, all of a sudden I'm being paid sort of 5% in and around pick a day uh, on a US two-year bond, 
right? All of a sudden, I'm getting, you know, over 4% on a US 10-year bond. So that becomes a lot more attractive. And, you know, sure, there is some upside risks, you know, if the markets uh, haven't priced in the full effects or the longing effects of inflation and potentially think that banks go higher. Yes, there's upside risk, but we're a long way through that already. Right. Then we start rolling off into some of the corporate debt. So if we hedge that back to sterling, you know, corporate bonds, you're getting five to six percent healed all of a sudden. I think, you know, if we if we say that the economy is in a good place, this idea of a soft landing is possible, potentially high yield is starting to look interesting, right? 10%, near 10% in some cases. Um, and if we don't think there's many defaults on the horizon, uh, that becomes quite attractive from an allocation perspective as well. I don't think we should be complacent, right? So our opening statements around inflation, you know, the path to 2% is difficult. You will have periods of this market getting confused, trying to reprice where things terminal rates are, and this continuous battle. So that creates an issue. But you're not starting from 1% now. You're starting from 4%. So the move from, you know, 4 to 5% is a lot less than from sort of 0 to 4% ultimately from a capital loss perspective. So I think that becomes really interesting. Um, something we probably haven't spoken about is emerging market debt. So roll back to the pandemic, this idea of transitory inflation. Uh, you know, emerging market central banks just said, absolutely not. We can't get this wrong. You know, inflation is absolutely deadly to our economies because of food price inflation. So we need to put a lid on this thing as quick as possible. So we're going to hike rates first, well ahead of developed markets, right? While we were still having transitory discussions, they were hiking rates. So with that same view, you're going to see rate cuts first. And we've already seen in the likes of you know, sort of Brazil, Chile, and arguably really high rates. But we're seeing a cut coming off of that. And you're getting yields of sort of, you know, nearer 6% uh, with the opportunity for capital gains because they're in a cutting cycle. That becomes interesting. So I think there are pockets of fixed income market that's looking better. I think our starting point from yields creates a more diversification benefits than we had last year. You know, we're at, you know, near 3% US inflation. You know, that would have been a bit of a myth 12 months ago to have that conversation. And so maybe those upside risks are a bit tempered as well. And have you made any portfolio moves in, in response to that? So, so we've added emerging market debt. Um, we think that's attractive. We added that before some of the rate cutting happened. We strategically hold it, but we've increased some of that weighting. Um, as I said, on the government bond side, we're still slightly short duration. Uh, I wouldn't say meaningfully, but sh slightly short duration. Uh, and then on the credit side, we, we're straddling across investment grade, high yield. Um, but again, you know, trying to keep that credit quality a little bit high, um, you know, acknowledging that there is some refinancing risk for companies, but we don't want to leave opportunity cost on the table. So I think between those optionalities, uh, we've got a fairly balanced fixed income exposure within portfolios. And moving on to equities, uh, one of the uh, interesting features of the equity markets in uh, in early 2023 was the strong year that, that uh, Japan had. It was a rip-roaring start. It's... Um, it came off the boil a little bit over the summer, as it happens. Uh, but asset uh, asset allocators that we that we cover uh, tend to stick their allocations on average between three and four percent, and that seems to be unmoved uh, despite the the strong start that Japan had to the year. And I was just wondering what your thoughts on whether this was a bubble or whether Japan is finally back. Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I think. Um, 
you know, there's some fundamental changes that's happened in Japan. But if we take a step back, you know, Japan's been cheap relative to other markets for a long, long time. And that sort of pricing in deflation, companies sitting on lots of cash, not returning that to shareholders, being a fairly complacent market, right? Um, and this year we saw, you know, many readers and many listeners would have followed that, you know, Tokyo Stock Exchange says, come on, guys, make us an investable market. If you've got a price to book value under one, let's try and prop that up by returning some cash to shareholders. And, and the primary means of that has been share buybacks, right? And so the market quickly has a look at that and says, oh, there's this value segment in Japan. It's cheap relative to other markets. Uh, you know, we've got some governance influence here that's going to try and prop up those valuations. So let me try and buy ahead of that. Clearly, it's not all going to happen in six months. And these companies will take years to unwind some of those cash positions. But that's been some of the key driver, I think, in coming up. That alongside yield curve control, so, you know, sort of keeping those rates low, uh, reducing some financing risk for some of these companies being attractive. We're seeing some unwinding of that. Um, so, you know, call it a rate hike, call it not, you know, ultimately we're seeing a relaxation of some of that yield curve control because your biggest enemy as an international investor in Japan has been the currency. And so as rates are slowly unwound, does that sort of reduce some of that headwind from a currency perspective? question mark, time will tell. Um, and secondly, some bond investors all of a sudden return, right? So I think, you know, you're moving from an economy that experienced deflation to the serious pockets of inflation. Fundamentals rate remain strong. I think the consumers are in a relatively good place. And that creates an interesting cocktail for an investor. And then add on top of that, the likes of, you know, Warren Buffett starting to go back into Japan, making the right noise and signals. That creates some momentum trade within that market as well. So I think there is a clear shift, right? So as long as companies can maintain their costs, i.e. labor being their, their largest cost component, markets like a little bit of inflation, right? We mustn't forget that. We just don't like lots of inflation. But a little bit of inflation for equity markets is good because you can pass on a lot of those um, price increases to consumers, manage your costs, increase profits. Uh, and so that continues to drive uh, earnings and ultimately prices follow earnings. And so we can start un unpacking why this becomes an interesting place to be. Um, I think things have moved quickly, very quickly, as you've noted. Um, the summer pause has probably not been so much a Japan issue, but a worldwide, where central banks going to land? How strong is growth going to be? Will there ever be a recession? What does a soft landing look like? Do we see steepening in yield curves? And everyone just took a break, pun intended, uh, to sort of just assess where we were from markets. Yeah. Okay. And you personally, how are you feeling about um, Japan in terms of portfolio, your portfolio? Yeah, so we've strategically held Japan in and around the numbers you've described, right? Maybe slightly higher. Um, I think in terms of the allocation changes that we made, we moved into what I would call sort of more mid-cap value Japan. Uh, once we had the announcement, we thought that that'd be an attractive place to to be within Japan. Uh, and so the Morant Wright Fund that we own gives us exposure to that. And that's been a really strong performer for us this year. Uh, and I think that continues to go a little bit forward, right? As long as there isn't a fundamental pivot in that stance and policy, uh, I think there's still some upside to be had. And again, one of the other developments of uh, the equity markets in 2023 was the strong start that um, US tech or growth stocks uh, fund uh, had um, uh, to the year. Uh, obviously, one of the um, one of the drivers of this was artificial intelligence, uh, as you alluded to a little bit earlier. Um, for example, stocks like Nvidia. And I was again wondering whether this was um, uh, this was a, a, a permanent feature, or whether you felt that this was uh, something of an AI-induced bubble. Yeah, it, it's a good one, and I think um, 
AI is definitely here to stay, right? So the amount of company announcements, I mean, uh, we, we're using AI to scrape reports to determine how many times AI is mentioned. So it's quite ironic how that all works. Um, you know, many companies are investing. I think right now people are investing in technology, big, large corporates across sectors, not quite sure yet what they'll do with it, but want to make sure they're not left behind. Right. And so clearly that's been the massive drive of NVIDIA is that we need the chips. Um, so companies are consuming that. You know, there's long back orders off the back of that. But markets are forward looking. And so I think, you know, we've seen an enormous amount of share price return. Um, and yes, you know, they yet again beat earnings expectations, which was positive. But what was interesting is the share price reaction was not as much as it was before. And so the incremental benefit, I think, from that is largely priced in. Um, so what we've seen now is the clear winners are the enablers of AI. So NVIDIA, great example, producing chips and stocks in, in, in order for you to, to develop these supercomputers and so on. What we haven't yet seen is who are the clear winners from a productivity aspect. So how do sort of day-to-day -day tasks change? Um, what new jobs are created? Uh, what new technologies exist? And how does that ultimately affect productivity, which is where the key and real benefit will be from a share price reaction. And that should, in theory, be a cross-sector, right, as well. So I think there is a bit of wait and see to be done, but I think the initial rally um, has it largely priced in. And, you know, we saw June, July, we saw broadening out in the S&P 500 as well. So it wasn't just tech that was continuing to move upwards. And, and finally, one of the, the stories of the summer was the sort of the will-they-won't-they they of the Bitcoin ETF. And I appreciate it's very early days, on this, and I was just wondering if I could get some general thoughts from you on on this uh, development. Uh, whether you what you what your thoughts are, I suppose, on the uh, the idea of a Bitcoin ETF. Definitely, and I think the um, the initial reaction is accessibility, right? So all of a sudden, something that's quite difficult to access within a portfolio, potentially depending on how it's structured in in a usage portfolio, would be quite difficult. Um, but what I do think is interesting is the minute we add accessibility, right? Because if you think about uh, the biggest issue we have with Bitcoin in a, in a multi-asset solutions-based portfolio is price stability, right? It is, uh, you know, arguably some people say it moves like a tech stock. Uh, other people say it's a, it's a, it's a, um, a lowly correlated asset, a diversifier. You know, that's not sure yet. But the minute you have more market participants, we have this beautiful thing in markets called price discovery, right? And so ultimately, as more people bid and make offers at different price points, it's reflecting what the true value is at a given point in time, reflecting the macro fundamentals, reflecting uh, a broader sentiment ultimately. And I think once that happens, uh, and you know, this is clearly not going to be short run, uh, but over the long periods of time, hopefully that creates some price stability. And all of a sudden, we can assess the risk return characteristics, understand how it could contribute or ultimately detract during different points in the market cycle, during different um, correlations across asset classes, uh, and then it becomes interesting. But given its price stability at the moment, it's very difficult for us to allocate to that asset class just because of the, the unknown of how it will behave. Uh, and what investors are looking for us is consistency, yeah. right? They're planning for long-term outcomes, whether it be retirement, whether it be funding, you know, their children's education, whether it be the next holiday to Albania. Uh, you know, ultimately, you know, we need that stability in terms of what we're investing in ultimately. Yes, well, this is the thing, isn't it? People's opinions on Bitcoin tend to vary quite wildly and often vary depending on their political opinions, don't they? 
I think the allure for, for the retail market is no one wants to get rich slowly, right? Uh, and that is what the promise, I think, in some aspects, Bitcoin was there for, which is delivered for some, I'd say, but probably more so on luck than anything else. Great. Well, thank you very much for um, your time, Alex, and thank you very much for listening. And tune in again in uh, two weeks' time for the next edition of the Asset Allocator podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye.